Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, too often, uh, when we hear the term security assistance, we immediately think of military relationships and hard power projections of U.S. foreign policy. However, U.S. security assistance and cooperation are critical tools of broader foreign policy. Training, arms sales, planning, and civilian military reform are critical elements of bolstering partners, allies, and recipient countries around the world, critical to U.S. foreign and security interests, and indeed to the interests of world stability and peace. Indeed, the State Department and this committee are charged with jurisdiction over security assistance. Many, if not most, of the current security assistance authorities and programs were created in the aftermath of September 11th, placing an emphasis on short-term assistance to immediately confront and defeat al-Qaeda and its offshoot groups. But times have changed, and our efforts must change as well. We see terrorists and extremist groups becoming more localized in many countries, portraying themselves as champions of aggrieved populations ignored or beset by weak and predatory governments. We see a return of great power competition where China and Russia compete with the United States for influence and position, offering their own versions of, quote, security assistance to countries around the world with what seems fewer conditions or requirements. We witnessed 20 years of efforts, or perhaps, or perhaps as it has been said, 21-year efforts to build effective military and security forces in Afghanistan, these largely led by the Department of Defense, only to watch them quickly crumble to the Taliban last August. We watched Iraqi security forces, to which we had devoted billions in equipment and training, flee before ISIS thugs in pickups in 2014, although now we have a new opportunity to reset our security relationship with Iraq. And today we see countries in Africa, particularly in the Sahel, struggling to counter insurgents and terrorists amidst multiple coups, perverse unrest, pervasive, I should say, unrest and conflict. It is clear that our security assistance and cooperation programs are not achieving their intended outcomes, despite the billions spent and dedicated efforts of the Departments of State and Defense. We, Congress included, are not properly conceptualizing the problem. We need to understand that our security assistance should be rooted in concrete, measurable, and achievable outcomes rooted in sustainable security development, not just assistance. We must develop comprehensive multi-year plans that integrate U.S. assistance programs across the board that reflect the understanding that democracy, good governance, and economic reform programs are as important as guns and grenade launches, that judicial accountability and robust civilian control of the military are as important as the integration of aircraft and ground force operations, that a population that has faith in the basic integrity and fairness of its government is one inoculated against the lies and appeals of terrorists and extremists, which is why the Department of State must lead this comprehensive integration. Since soon after 9-11, there has been a continued trend towards ceding state's authority as the purveyor of security assistance to the Department of Defense which now provides nearly 50% of U.S. security-related assistance. Most of the DOD's efforts are geared to short-term projects and activities, and perhaps necessary ones, but not those that deal with the underlying problems of good governance, and many of them without the concurrence of the Secretary of State, the sole official charged in statute with overseeing and coordinating all such assistance. It's time 
for a reckoning. To this end, I'll be proposing legislation in the next few months to reform the U.S. security assistance process. I hope to work closely with the ranking member on this project. And finally, uh, let me turn to the news of the day. Over the last two weeks, we have seen Vladimir Putin's savage aggression against a free and democratic Ukraine. The destruction he has wrought is of a scale and criminality not seen in Europe since the Second World War. But the Ukrainian people have heroically resisted, clearly frustrating and surprising the autocrat in the Kremlin. Much of this resistance has been made possible by the tremendous efforts of the United States, its allies and partners in providing anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, rifles, ammunition, training, and institutional organizational improvements to the defenders of Ukraine freedom. I hope and expect that our witnesses today will be able to inform the committee of this vital ongoing effort to help defend Ukraine. The dexterity with which the state and defense departments have been able to rally support for Ukraine comes from longstanding political and security partnerships and programs. And that's something we certainly can applaud. I turn it to the ranking member now for his opening remarks. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I do look forward to uh, working with you on the legislation you referred to, and I hope uh, we'll be there at the takeoff rather than the landing, as uh, has been uh, suggested uh, in the past. Um, look, never uh, has the subject of U.S. security assistance been more important. It plays a vital role in defense of the de uh, democratic world and our partners. Uh, in this hearing, we need to understand our efforts and what else we can do to ensure Ukraine defeats Russia. I also hope to hear about major new security assistance programs in the Indo-Pacific where the State Department has failed to invest sufficient resources. And we owe the nation a discussion on lessons learned from security assistance or lack thereof in Iraq and Afghanistan and how those two efforts resulted in such remarkable failures. Regarding the Ukraine, uh, my wants are the same as President Zelensky's. It's simple, more and faster. Well, we have provided significant resources to the Ukraine, and certainly the administration is to be applauded for what it has done, particularly over the past year. Packages sat on the president's desk longer than they should have, and we lost valuable time. Now, combat losses have depleted most of this aid, and Ukrainians desperately need more and faster. My goal here is simple. Enable the Ukrainian people to expel the Russians and defeat the savage and murderous Putin. Ukraine needs more. Uh, needs more Javelin anti-tank missiles, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, larger anti-aircraft systems, drones, am, uh, ammunition of all calibers, communications gear, uh, pro, uh, protective equipment, and airplanes. Lots more also are needed. I have an ammunition manufacturer in Idaho ready to send more. They need state sign-off. We, su we should support our allies providing aircraft to the Ukrainians. Stop overthinking this and toughen up. Keep these supplies flowing steadily. I guarantee you, the Russians aren't wimping around on these matters. They're acting. The Ukrainian people have made their stand. They are not asking us to fight on their behalf. They're merely asking for our support. Also, as the world watches Ukraine, our Asian allies are watching. Taiwan, threatened by a massive authoritarian neighbor, wonders how vulnerable it is to the growing might of the Chinese military. I hope the fierce resistance of the Ukrainians inspires Taiwan and casts doubt within the Chinese military on its prospects of successful aggression. To ensure the Communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party knows it can ex cannot succeed, uh, we should be doing now for Taiwan 
what we should have done years ago for Ukraine. We should support investment in Taiwan's defense and help reform its planning and organization, which are needed. My Taiwan Deterrence Act proposes just that, by starting a foreign military finance grant program for Taiwan to highlight U.S. commitment to deterrence, incentivizing Taiwan to invest more in its own defense, and mandating more joint planning with Taiwan to determine the capabilities, uh, its needs, and uh, how best to defend itself. Time is running short. We must start this effort now. In the Middle East, today is almost uh, seven months after the disastrous U.S. U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and that disaster demands we ask hard questions about U.S. security assistance. Uh, throughout a 20-year period, the U.S. spent over $125 billion to build the Iraq and uh, Afghan militaries. Some efforts succeeded, especially the Syrian uh, Democratic Forces campaign against ISIS. But we saw the larger U.S.-supported Iraqi and Afghan armies melt away in the face of ISIS and the Taliban. The U.S. government has not institutionalized the lessons from these failures. Instead, it seems eager to forget the whole uh, debacle. We must ensure security assistance is truly focused on our most vital interests and, su and supports our wider foreign policy and national security objectives, not just tactical and operational capabilities. As the Defense Department continues efforts to cut the State Department out of security cooperation, we've seen a greater focus on short-term tactical capabilities than on sustainable forces aligned with strategic foreign policy. However, U.S. policy should focus on building enduring institutions, not just tact tactical units. We must address governance challenges like corruption in all our activities, and we need to professionalize our security assistance workforce. Security cooperation must support strategic and diplomatic objectives. That is why the State Department must reassert its role in the process, and the Senate should support that. But the uh, State must also be an active and helpful participant helping coordinate with the Defense Department. Security assistance is, is among the most essential tools of foreign policy, but this policy is being tested. We must succeed in helping Ukraine defend itself. We must pursue new efforts with Taiwan, and we must ensure that all of our efforts benefit from the hard, very hard lessons over the past 20 years. We must also acknowledge the world is indeed a more dangerous place than it was 15 to 20 years ago. Our security cooperation must recognize this hard reality as we work with partners around the world to confront dangerous regimes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, let's turn to our witnesses. It's now my privilege to welcome back to the committee Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, Jessica Lewis. There are few people better positioned to engage with Congress on United States security assistance programs than Assistant Secretary Lewis, following her nearly two decades working on foreign policy issues in Congress. Prior to assuming her role as Assistant Secretary, she served here at the committee as the Democratic Staff Director for five years, and from 2007 to 2014, Assistant Secretary Lewis was the National Security Advisor and Foreign Policy Advisor, and then Senior National Security Advisor to Senate Majority and Minority Leader Harry Reid. So we welcome you back. We also welcome Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities, Dr. Mara Carlin. Uh, Assistant Secretary Carlin is now working for her sixth Secretary of Defense, where she has advised the Department on policies spanning strategic planning, defense policy, and budgeting future conflicts and regional security affairs. Assistant Secretary Carlin previously performed the duties of Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and from August of 2021 to February of 2022, 
and prior to that served as the Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. So welcome to you both. We'll start the testimony. We'd ask you to summarize in about five minutes or so so the committee can engage in a conversation with you and we'll recognize you, Secretary Lewis, to start off. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. It's an honor to appear before you, and it is great to see all the familiar faces I worked with for so many years. I am pleased to be here to discuss United States Security Sector Assistance with Dr. Marla Carlin, Assistant Secretary of Defense. And I agree with both the chairman and the ranking member, never has it been more important to discuss security assistance, and we do need a new path forward. Security cooperation, including security sector assistance, is an instrument of foreign policy. It is an integral component of our national security strategy that enables foreign partners to join us in advancing global security. And our support to Ukraine demonstrates the wide array of tools that state and DOD can bring to a partner's security sector. Since assuming office last January, this administration has provided over $1 billion to Ukraine's defensive capabilities, including through foreign military financing, the DOD Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, and other program lines. Through the Multinational Joint Commission, we work with Ukraine and our allies to identify military requirements and match funding streams to support needed defense capabilities ranging from radars to javelins. Through the Excess Defense Articles Program, we have delivered to Ukraine armed Coast Guard cutters to create an asymmetric maritime capability in the Black Sea. In addition, through programs such as our International Military Education and Training Authority, we've supported the development of a cadre of professional and Western-looking mid- and senior-level Ukrainian officers. And through a series of exercises, DOD has strengthened the interoperability of our forces and Ukraine's tactical and operational capabilities. As the Secretary of State said recently, last fall, as the present threat against Ukraine from Russia developed, under the authority delegated by the President, he authorized the Department of State to provide $60 million in immediate military assistance to Ukraine. In December, as that threat materialized, he authorized a further drawdown worth $200 million. Then, as Ukraine took up arms with courage to fend off Russia's brutal and unprovoked assault, he authorized an unprecedented third presidential drawdown of up to $300 million, the largest in history, for immediate support to Ukraine's defense. At the same time, we continue to expeditiously process and approve requests for deliveries of U.S. origin material military equipment to Ukraine from allies and partners through our third-party transfer authority. Considering the strategic environment and the existing architecture of security cooperation and assistance together, I also see several opportunities for Congress to help address the security challenges we are currently facing and apply valuable lessons learned. Um, first, I would encourage the committee to elevate security sector governance as a central consideration in U.S. security cooperation and assistance planning and treat long-term institutional capacity building as our primary mission. As a piece of this, human rights and the rule of law is really at the center of the discussion about security sector cooperation, I'm, I'm sorry, security sector governance. And we look forward to working with all of you and the many members on this committee who have focused on this topic. Second, states' authorities require more flexibility. If we are to effectively address emerging crises and opportunities in today's geopolitical environment, 
Greater flexibility is needed on several fronts. Greater flexibility for FMF and PKO funding would allow the department to be more responsive and in certain circumstances result in cost saving. I would also encourage the appropriation of funds on a more regional or functional basis. Third, because there is no freestanding acquisition system for FMS, we encourage Congress to work with our DOD colleagues to seek efficiencies and make reforms to the federal acquisition process. Fourth, to ensure security cooperation and security assistance serve US foreign policy goals and are properly synchronized and deconflicted to make maximum efficiency of taxpayer dollars, DOD security cooperation's authorities existing and futures should include Secretary of State concurrence. Fifth, and in support of the reforms above, State Department staffing must keep pace with the increased workload and we must develop a better trained security cooperation workforce at the department. Mr. Chairman, what our history tells us is one thing for certain, the nature of global security is ever changing. And as it shifts and evolves, so too should our security assistance toolkit. That is why our alliances and partnerships are so vital. These alliances and partnerships in turn rely on security assistance and security cooperation to build capabilities, strengthen relationships, and provide interoperability. And as the Secretary has said many times, it is critical that we keep human rights at the center of that policy. Security assistance is not just a concept to be debated in the abstract, it is a real demand of today's world, encompassing a complex and broad scope of activities. It is therefore critical that we apply the authorities we have as effectively as we can and continue to think about how we can revise and renew them to face the next challenge. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Dr. Carlin. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. I appreciate the invitation to testify before you today on security cooperation, and I'm honored to do so alongside my close colleague, Assistant Secretary Lewis. I respectfully submit my written statement for the record and will provide brief opening remarks. The United States is at a pivotal moment with our allies and partners to confront unprecedented challenges to our security, including the People's Republic of China's global ambitions and Russian aggression that threatens the territorial integrity of Europe, all the while we battle historic transnational threats. One of the most important ways that we will rise to meet these challenges is by renewing a U.S. strategic advantage, our unmatched network of allies and partners. The forthcoming national defense strategy will emphasize how the department will strengthen these alliances and partnerships through integrated deterrence, which as Secretary Austin underscores, involves integrating our efforts across domains and the spectrum of conflict to ensure that the department closely collaborates with the rest of the government and our allies and partners on the most critical security challenges. Security cooperation is an important part of this. The Department of Defense has learned from large-scale assistance programs that for lasting impact, a comprehensive engagement plan must mean more than training and equipping. Resilient relationships thrive when values and deeds align. Security cooperation aims to uphold that approach. We aim to help partners with not only specific capabilities, but also with institutional integrity and an ability to promote our shared values, notably the promotion and protection of human rights and good governance 
and legitimacy of the security sector. We view this as a strategic advantage that distinguishes us from our competitors. The degree of partnership should not be measured by the quantity of security cooperation programs, but rather by their quality. That includes transparency and effectiveness. We are building a culture of learning and adaptation, drawing on lessons from program successes and program challenges. To seize the opportunity for meaningful change, we are focusing on three priority areas, prioritizing who and what we invest in, focusing on sustainable impact, and adopting a holistic integrated approach to how we execute security cooperation programs. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, the U.S. network of alliances and partnerships is a strategic advantage, but this advantage is not a given. It requires active involvement by the entire U.S. government and listening to partners' concerns and contacts and taking a thoughtful and deliberate approach to how we employ our resources to meet our priorities. That is facilitated by good strategy, good policy, and close partnership among the Department of Defense, the Department of State, and Congress. I appreciate your leadership on this critical issue, and thank you for the opportunity to share our vision for security cooperation. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Your full statements will be included in the record. Um, so we'll start around in five minutes. Let me first start off before I get to broader policy questions here. Uh, there is a, a bipartisan uh, support uh, for uh, providing a Ukraine uh, with uh, fighter jets of neighboring countries uh, that they would know how to fly and engage in. Um, and I understand that the Polish decision uh, may have complicated uh, how we achieve that, but what is uh, our present status in terms of exploring potential paths to providing fighter jets to Ukraine? Thank you, Senator, and I know that this is something that's very much on the committee's minds. Um, Secretary Blinken actually um, addressed this yesterday, um, and I'll comment and then happy to turn it over to Dr. Carlin as well. Um, look, we understand, first of all, when it comes to the planes, that it's up to um, any country. It's a sovereign decision about the transfer of the planes. Um, and as you noted, that there were some complexities with the plan that was provided. Um, and we heard for yesterday from the Department of Defense on um, that particular proposal. At this point, um, we are consulting very closely with Poland and our other, our other NATO allies on the best way forward. Um, we are working hard on this, and as, we, as that consultation develops, we will stay in close touch with you and the committee um, to make sure that you have the information. The time is of the essence. Uh, the Ukrainians are, are uh, getting uh, bombarded, um, and they uh, do not have, as least as their country's leaders suggest and assert, that they do not have the wherewithal to compete in the sky. And so I understand why NATO and the United States are not engaged in a no-fly zone that has potential direct conflict with Russia, but I don't understand why we are not working expeditiously to facilitate planes to Ukraine. Go ahead. 
Thank you for raising this issue, Senator. And looking holistically, of course, I would just cite the tremendous statement by Assistant Secretary Lewis in her opening remarks about the unprecedented level of support to Ukraine. It has been extraordinary. I'm talking about planes. I, I have no doubt that we have been giving enormous assistance to Ukraine. Uh, we're going to vote hopefully today and continuing to do that. I'm talking specifically about planes. Absolutely, Senator. Thank you for that. We're really focusing in particular on what we see as them needing most, anti-armor and air defense capabilities. Ukraine's Air Force does have several squadrons of mission-capable uh, aircraft in this contested airspace. But what we are seeing is that they really need greater air defense. And frankly, as we and our uh, allies and partners are rushing this assistance to them, we are seeing the operational impact of it on the battlefield every single day. So you're saying they don't need airplanes? What I am saying, sir, is that we are trying to provide everything we can that really helps them with air defense, and we don't see significant effectiveness tied to those airplanes specifically. Well, if, I would, if we're giving them air defense other than airplanes, we better give it to them soon. The horrific pictures yesterday, uh, or today's news, about uh, the bombing of a maternity uh, hospital. Uh, I, if we cannot be moved by that, I don't know what we can be moved by. So I'm not going to belabor the point except to say uh, either we're going to get them some air defense systems that they can protect themselves with, or we need to engage with them um, in terms of the jet question. Let me turn to um, uh, some broader questions. Secretary Lewis, recognizing you've been on the job for less than six months, but also recognizing that you were sitting on this side of the dais before that. Uh, do you believe that state's role in setting bilateral security assistance policies diminished over the last several years? Well, Senator, I certainly agree that there has been a shift over a number of years in terms of particularly on security assistance um, from the State Department to the Defense Department. And, okay, so that's, that's a diplomatic way of saying yes. So uh, to what extent is this a problem for U.S. foreign policy? What reforms, uh, you mentioned some reforms, but should be done to strengthen state security assistance programs? Well, I think first, and one of the things I did mention, is making sure that the State Department has concurrence on the Defense Department programs that overlap with us, which we do in a number of areas, but not 100%. Um, and we are working on that issue. Um, I think the second piece is um, looking at creating more flexibility in the State Department funding so that we can be have State Department be ready to respond. Um, there is more flexibility in the, in the Defense Department funding, and so that enables them sometimes to move more quickly. Um, so I think those would be the top of my list in terms of two changes to make Doc, immediately. Dr. Carlin, do you agree that DOD security assistance and cooperation programs unavoidably involve the foreign relations of the United States? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I do believe that security assistance to be effective has to absolutely fall under the rubric of our foreign policy interests. So based upon that, shouldn't the Secretary of State have concurrence authority over all DOD foreign security assistance and cooperation activities to fulfill his statutory responsibility to oversee and coordinate all U.S. foreign policy activities? Thank you for raising this issue, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the State Department and Department of Defense staff work very closely to collaborate on all of these programs. Yeah, okay, that's a non-answer. Uh, the reality is, is that there's one person statutorily who has the responsibility 
for this assistance in terms of foreign policy as the Secretary of State. The Defense Department over years and administrations has taken more and more of this responsibility without the statutory responsibility of the Secretary being engaged. And I expect the State Department to get what it is rightfully responsible for. I don't care what type of brotherhood or sisterhood exists between the two departments. You need to meet your statutory responsibility. And that's what the committee is going to continue to pursue. Finally, uh, I know uh, that, uh, as you may know, I have long been concerned about the circumstances under which we provide U.S. assistance to Azerbaijan. A report that I commissioned under the GAO was released last week that found that, after, that over several years, the State Department and DOD failed to meet statutory reporting requirements to Congress on the impact of U.S. assistance and on the military balance between Armenia and Azerbaijan. This is deeply concerning as Azerbaijan's actions in the Nagorno-Karabakh region have led to the deaths of more than 6,000 people, extracted a steep toll on Armenians, uprooting them from uh, year, thousands from their homes. Are you familiar with the report's findings, uh, Secretary Lewis, and do you commit to review states' compliance with the 907 waiver requirements for providing assistance to Azerbaijan? Yes, Senator, I am familiar, and yes, I commit to do that. Um, and I'm aware that the GAO report raised concerns about providing additional info, uh, information related to those waivers. Um, and we will, um, it's a priority for me to look into that and ensure that we provide the information required. And it's a priority for me to conduct the oversight and make sure this happens. I don't want to see this anymore. It's really, I shouldn't have had to, to commission a report to get what we all know, that there has been a failure uh, to justify this assistance. Sen uh, Senator Risch. Yep. Th uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, look, I, uh, I am going to belabor the point on the airplane some. Uh, I, I don't usually feel comfortable in speaking for the Republican caucus, but I am this time, and that is uh, we are unanimous that this needs to be done. I, I watched uh, uh, Tony the other night, who I consider a friend, try to explain why we're not giving them airplanes. That doesn't wash. The people on the ground are saying that they need airplanes to have people here in D.C. saying, well, this is going to be a problem or that's going to be a problem. Give them the airplanes. You know, I mean, we really, really need to do that. Um, if if, uh, if they it turns out they can't use them, so be it. But I'd, I'd hate to be in the position where we have things that they can defend themselves with and we won't give them to them. In addition to that, you really also need to focus on the intermediate missiles. You know, you got a spectrum there with the Stingers being at the low end and the Patriots being at the large end, but there's a, a half a dozen systems in between that they could really, really use to defend the skies. So... Uh, my, my plea would be get at it. Uh, we need to help these people, and not not tomorrow, but uh, today this, this stuff needs to start moving. So I, I don't know what uh, juice you have up there to, to push this thing along, but I'm telling you, this is uh, it's an embarrassment to, to be here and be in a position where we can give them something to defend themselves with and, and not being able to do it. Mr. Chairman, with your... Uh, with your uh, Indulgence, I'd like to yield the rest of my time to Senator Portman, who has another meeting, and he wants to get a couple of words in before he goes. Sure. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. Secretary Carlin, you have said that you can't give planes to them because they really need better air defense, end quote. We don't think they need planes. They think they need planes. So are you saying the only reason that the Department of Defense is against providing these MiG-29s 
to Ukrainians that you know better than them what they need to defend themselves. Is that your only reason? Thank you for raising this issue, Senator Portman. I, I need to go quickly. Of course. Uh, I would say that we are trying to get Ukraine everything that it can use immediately in the field today. That is the priority. In, in, in your judgment. So your judgment uh, is overriding their judgment as to what they need. Because they say they need airplanes. We have spoken closely with them. And to be frank, it is ultimately a sovereign decision for Poland. We are consulting. No, no, no. We, we have spoken closely with them also, including the president of Ukraine. So are, are you saying that that is the reason? Senator, I will convey all of your concerns back. No, no, I, just to answer my question, are you saying that is the reason that, you, that your judgment supersedes that of the Ukrainian military? I am not is, saying is, is, that. Is, that. is that the reason? I am saying that they have multiple squadrons that are mission Okay, so capable. you're saying that, that is, because the other reason I've heard is that somehow this would make Vladimir Putin upset if we were to send these weapons. In fact, we already are sending stingers and javelins, correct? And in fact, you just said that the air defense weapons are more effective, and that's what we should be sending. So you're saying that what we would like to send is something that's more effective, that therefore should offend Vladimir Putin more Thank than, you for than, than, than the airplanes, correct? Thank and, you for And you can't send that. airplanes. What's the logic behind that? Thank you for raising that, Senator. We are indeed providing the assistance that you highlighted, as have many of our allies. Uh, indeed, are you, there are, are you saying that you're concerned about uh, provoking Vladimir Putin? Isn't that one of your reasons? I think escalation considerations do need to factor into. So all you're saying of these you are you are escalating with with a weapon that you think is less effective than other weapons you would like to send them. How does that make sense logically? Our intelligence community has looked at this issue. I am more than willing to discuss it further in a classified session. But I do believe Well, we that don't need a classified session. Here, here, here we are. You're saying the two reasons we're now learning is, one, that, that your judgment uh, is superseding that of the Ukrainian military, and two, you think that it's somehow more provocative, even though you are saying that you should be sending them and want to send them something you think is more effective in the field, that by definition would be something the Russians would be more concerned about, correct? We are giving them capabilities that they are using immediately. We are looking very closely at escalation. They, they, would, use, this they would use this equipment immediately. Their pilots are ready to go. They're, they're, they're repairing airfields to be able to use it. They're willing to take off from highways. I mean, they, they, they want this right away. And again, I go back to what the chairman ranking member said about the situation is dire. We don't have time here. I mean, the maternity hospital you, you raised is an example that this is a deliberate bombing of a maternity hospital. We know that because Lavrov responded by saying, yeah, they sometimes they had militia there. And the bigger context is here, this is an ally of ours. This is a sovereign country. So it's okay for us to have Russia go in and, and bomb people and take all kinds of weapons in, but it's somehow not appropriate for us to help facilitate what Poland wants to do, and hopefully other countries as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. And, and to my colleague, Senator Rich, thank you for indulging me with giving me some of your time. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I appreciate that this is not a decision that is being made at the level that either of you are operating. But I just want to weigh in with all of my colleagues. There is bipartisan support to provide these planes. It is disappointing to see the reluctance on the part of the administration, and it's coming across as indecision and bickering among members of the administration, which is not helpful to the cause and not helpful to the administration. So I hope you will share that with um, those you report to and get us a better answer. I mean, if there is a good answer for why we're not doing this, we all can understand that. But 
we haven't gotten a good answer to the question. I, I want to go on to an, another issue. Um, and thank you, Secretary Lewis, for um, your testimony today and for working with our office to address an issue that we have, uh, a private company has, to try and get answers on a commercial sale. I, I know you're working hard to help us get that resolved, and I really appreciate that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Women, Peace, and Security um, law that we have in New Hampshire because our in in Congress and in the United States, because I think it it is important as we think about how we address conflicts, whether it's in Ukraine, Afghanistan, around the world. And I know that there are different levels of implementation of the law, so I wonder if each of you could address where you think um, your department is with respect to that implementation and how you see it working. Um, Senator Sheen, first of all, um, I really want to thank you for your leadership on this issue. It truly is inspirational to all of us. Um, and I am always happy uh, to work with your office um, to try to resolve any pending issues um, before uh, the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Um, so, and I know we talked about this a little bit in my nomination hearing. Um, I want to to, uh, highlight three um, pieces of work that we've worked on specifically under the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs. Um, so first of all, let me start talking about the Global Peace Operations Initiative. We call it GPOI. Um, it's the world's largest peace operations capacity building program. And we have partnered with more than 50 countries um, that work with the UN and the African Union peacekeepers to support women's participation and leadership in peace operations, to train women peacekeepers, and to integrate gender-related topics focused on gender and women's participation in peace operations. Um, I'm also going to mention something that sounds mundane but is incredibly important. Um, although um, through GPOI, PM continues to remort, work to remove barriers to women's participation in training through gender-inclusive facility upgrades, including accommodations, bathrooms, and showers at Partners' Peace Operations Training Centers. These are the kinds of things that can keep women from being able to participate. And can I just interrupt you for a minute? Of course. Because I think one of the things that um, is missed sometimes is why this is important, um, both on, for security. So do you want to speak to that? Absolutely. If we don't have women who are 50% of the population participating on security-related issues, then we miss a whole host of important issues. Women understand what's going on in their communities. They understand, particularly in peacekeeping operations, how to help keep people safe, including women and children. Um, and they bring a unique lens and vision to security-related issues. Um, and if we don't have women at the table, often we miss key things that make differences, like Again, as we're looking at peacekeeping operations, making sure that women's rights are respected. Um, so this, is, this isn't just important to women, this is important to the whole community. And I've only got a few seconds left, so Dr. Carlin, I wonder if you could talk, speak to what DOD is doing in this area. 
Thank you for raising this issue, Senator, especially serendipitously during the week of International Women's Day. I very much agree with everything Assistant Secretary Lewis said, and indeed we have a number of efforts across our combatant commands to ensure that women, peace, and security issues are really looped into what they're doing. I think Assistant Secretary Lewis made the argument exactly right. We've got to involve the entire population so that they're bought in to the meaningful change that we all seek. Thank you. And I would just point out that we have very good data that shows when women are bought in and they are at the table, that those negotiations last longer and are more stable, and that that's really important. So there are very good um, data-driven reasons why this makes sense. Thank you both. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I fully concur with the introductory comments made by the chairman and the ranking member and by Senator Portman and Senator Shaheen. Um, I, I simply do not understand the logic for not getting the MiGs to the Ukrainians immediately. There is no logic which has been provided to this committee or to the nation for the lack of rapidity in making this decision and getting them the MiGs. It makes no sense. And if there are people in the administration that know the answer, I would suggest we get the occasion to meet with them, perhaps in a classified setting. But we need to know the reason why those MiGs have not been transferred already. There's, I believe there's a sentiment that we're fearful about what Putin might do and what he might consider as an escalation. It's time for him to be fearful of what we might do. The only way to get Putin to act in a way that may be able to save lives of Ukrainians is if he fears us more than we fear him. And the truth of the matter is that his military is exposed in Ukraine, bogged down, unfed, without fuel. They're in a very precarious position. He's got to think about what happens if he provokes us because they could be obliterated by the forces of NATO. So I, I would suggest that, that the, the continued, we, we've had this discussion now day after day after day of people from the State Department like yourselves saying we're talking, we're considering, this is war, people are dying. We need to get this aircraft immediately to the people of Ukraine. That's what they're asking for. By the way, the idea that somehow we're calculating what's effective for them to run their war and that our, and that our stingers and our javelins are better than our aircraft it makes no sense at all. They're better at running their own war. They know what the conditions of the ground are. They're there, we're not. And further, our A-10s would help. We need to get them A-10s. That's the aircraft that's really ideally designed for this kind of warfare. Why are we dithering on that as well? This makes no sense to me at all. And I would respectfully request that as you return to the State Department, you indicate to them that we, this committee, deserve a response because as uh, Senator Shaheen has said, our caucuses, both sides of the aisle, are united on this. Get them the aircraft. Now, I, I, would, um, I would also note that um, I would anticipate that there are going to be some adjustments in our military strategy with regards to Moldova, Georgia, the Balkans. What, what changes do you see with regards to... Uh, arms and support going to other nations that Putin has his eyes on. Because it's now very clear, I think, to the entire world that this is a person who is trying to reestablish the old, if you will, boundaries of the Soviet Union and bring more and more nations under his control. 
and, uh, and that's unacceptable. What's happened in Ukraine could spread to other places. What do we do militarily to prepare them for uh, or to, to make them less vulnerable to his attack? Senator Romney, thank you for that question and for your leadership on this issue. Um, we have been thinking through uh, exactly this question that you're raising, which is um, how to make sure the eastern flank is shored up. Um, one of the things I know is that um, in the CR that I think is moving quickly, uh, there's about another $200 million in presidential drawdown authority. And then I think uh, when the final appropriations passes, another significant potentially billions. But and we say, but these are these are small numbers, very small numbers for helping these nations defend themselves. Uh, I think the good news is there are bigger numbers in the um, appropriations bill, the Omni. Um, so I know there's over $3 billion there in presidential drawdown assistance and another $500 million in foreign military funds. And we can use those funds as well for the eastern flank countries. We have already started working on exactly what their needs are to make sure that they are shored up. And I think lessons learned from this conflict will apply in terms of both training and the type of equipment they need. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, I did read somewhere uh, that, uh, I don't know if it's Moldova, Moldova not looking for arms. Uh, we, we need to have a discussion with them as to what they think they need or not. But, uh, but I agree with the senator. Who's next? Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank both of you uh, for your testimony today. Uh, Assistant Secretary Carlin, you've written a book on the challenges of building militaries in fragile states. Uh, I chair the Africa subcommittee, and perhaps uh, there's no other area where those challenges uh, are greater, uh, especially with respect to the Sahel region, uh, which has seen seven successful or attempted coups in just the last 18 months. Uh, and that's despite influx of US security assistance uh, funds. Uh, in fact, military officers alleged to have received US funding, funded training have been implicated in several of these coups. Now, I'm historically and still a supporter of the IMET uh, program. But uh, if you look at the sort of oversight uh, on some of these countries and IMET programs over the years, you find big shortcomings. Uh, back in 2011, a GAO report found that civil military relations was identified as a priority for IMET training in only one third of the most repressive African states. And more recently in 2019, a GAO report found, quote, DOD does not systemic, systematically track human rights training, including civil military relations, and as a result, GAO could not fully report on this uh, in, in 2019. So my question is pretty simple. You would agree that it, it's not a good idea for the United States to be providing training to people who then turn around and use that training to engage in military coups, right? Senator, I very much share your concern about the examples that you raised. And indeed, our training emphasizes the need for the appropriate role of the military in society. And when these sorts of events do occur, as you know, we immediately consult with our colleagues at the State Department right. to pause and assess. So what, is your, what have you done since 2019 specifically uh, to uh, both provide you know, greater reporting that indicates it's a priority, and, and do you dispute the 2011 finding that it's not a priority in many of your programs? 
Senator, thank you for raising this issue. Uh, we have indeed focused in particular on lessons learned so that when these events happen, we can step back and try to figure out why did they occur, what do we need to do. Uh, you know, what we have also seen with our IMET training, as you highlighted, is that it often leads to leaders of um, the military, say chiefs of defense or service chiefs. Indeed, uh, I think there's more than 1,100 international PME alumni who've so, served. So, Madam Assistant Secretary, I'm not disputing the overall benefits of the IMET program. Back in the 1980s, I used to write justifications for the IMET program uh, at the defense, what was then the Defense Security Assistance Agency. So, I'm not disputing the overall value of the program, but clearly a program that at least as applied to countries in Africa ends up training people who then engage in military coups, that cannot be defined as a success. So uh, I'm gonna ask you beyond this hearing to get back to us uh, with specifically what additional measures you're taking to address the shortcomings that were identified in both the 2011 and 29 GAO reports. Is that all right? Thank you, Senator. I would Thank welcome you. doing so. And I would just say broadly, uh, you know, one of the things that has become clear to us is that we cannot take an Excel spreadsheet approach to how we do security cooperation. And I think the examples you're highlighting really exemplify that. I, no, I appreciate that. Now, the IMET program is, is subject to the, the Leahy Law uh, disclosure and reporting requirements and human rights requirements. Uh, but we also provide uh, forms of security assistance in an operational uh, setting under Section 127E of Title 10. Um, would you agree that with respect to those engagements, we should also uh, vet them uh, to ensure that the participants have not engaged previously in gross violations of human rights? Thank you for raising this issue, Senator. Uh, indeed, as you say, uh, Leahy vetting is not required. However, there is a security vetting process that, that this does go through. So would you have any objection if we applied a Leahy law vetting requirement subject to a, a waiver? I would welcome working with my colleagues at the State Department to, to look at this issue. Okay, because um, we're working with some of our colleagues uh, in the House right now uh, and submitted an amendment to the last NDAA. It was, um, it was not adopted, but uh, I would... I look forward to working with you and your colleagues at the, at the State Department as well uh, on this issue because uh, I think given the track record, especially uh, in the Sahel, uh, we have uh, more questions than answers at this point. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Um, I've seen reports in the press that Putin's invasion of Ukraine has prompted a further delay in internal assessment of the much-anticipated national security strategy and national defense strategy. Now, I recognize the realities uh, of, of our current security environment, and I understand that those realities sometimes intervene in the policy planning process. Uh, but we cannot permit Vladimir Putin's reckless actions to undermine our long-term strategic imperatives in the Indo-Pacific. Ms. Carlin, as the official responsible for developing the NDS and, and matching ends with means, can you commit that changes to our strategy in Europe will not undermine both our commitments to Taiwan and our efforts to increase their resistance to the Chinese Communist Party's pressure, including their defensive military capabilities? 
Thank you very much for raising this issue, Senator. Uh, I can't speak to the national security strategy, but on the national defense strategy, I can assure you that we've been working very hard at it. And indeed, thanks to the tremendous work of the US intelligence community, we have been all quite cognizant of Russia's uh, aggression in Europe uh, for, for months now, in fact. Um, I can also assure you that as Secretary Austin has said, China is the pacing challenge for the US Department of Defense. We are, of course, accounting for Russian aggression as well. And finally, uh, regarding support for Taiwan, it is absolutely a priority to ensure that Taiwan is getting the asymmetric capabilities that it needs that is most appropriate for the challenge that it faces. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for your response. Uh, I was encouraged to hear the president uh, recently uh, emphasized the need for uh, uh, bolstering Taiwan's defenses through the use of, of asymmetric weapons, including harpoon uh, weapons, anti-ship weapons. Uh, that seems appropriate to me. So we need to move uh, more in that direction, is my assessment. As, as a further means of follow-up, we're a decade removed from the so-called pivot to Asia. Uh, it's been, to a great extent, it, it's been a rhetorical pivot, but some very concrete uh, initiatives have uh, taken place. It's clear that resources didn't fully pursue uh, uh, the strategy, didn't follow the strategy, uh, especially with respect to security assistance, though. Ms. Lewis, how are you prioritizing the flow of security assistance to the Indo-Pacific and fixing the imbalance uh, that currently exists? between how we support partners in East Asia versus partners in other regions? Well, first of all, Senator Young, thank you for that question. Um, and I do think, um, as you point out, that we really need to focus on our security assistance uh, to the Indo-Pacific, to the region. Um, let me answer your question specifically. One of the challenges that we have, um, which I pointed out in my um, initial testimony, is most, I think it's 93% of our funding is actually earmarked in the FMF category, um, which gives us little flexibility to make those kinds of changes. Um, so again, something we're happy to work with you on. Um, what I would say is I look at this from, I want to highlight three different ways to look at this. One is Taiwan specifically. Um, and I think, as you know, um, our support remains rock solid. We provided $18 billion to Taiwan um, in, since 2017 in security assistance. And then an additional through commercial sales, which are we regulate commercial sales in my bureau, another $2.3 billion to Taiwan since 2017. And very focused on the asymmetric weapons you're talking about, which we can talk about in more detail. But I think we both have to focus on the Indo-Pacific, you know, and the whole region um, developing um, additional partnerships with Japan, with, who are purchased the F-35, the Philippines, v Vietnam, also AUKUS. And then the last piece, which I would be remiss in not mentioning, is I actually think as we look at China as the pacing challenge, we also need to look at countries in Africa and in Latin America to deepen and strengthen our security relationships there because China is focused on those regions as well. Indeed. Uh, you, you mentioned it, it's, it's a sobering figure. 93% of FMS assistance is, is earmarked. So not a lot of flexibility there. Every administration wants more flexibility. Every congressional uh, body wants, wants uh, uh, more of a say. Uh, do we need to just increase the top line? Could that be a solution? Uh, in addition, that could be a solution. Okay. Thank you. Um, 
Chairman Menendez will be back in a moment, so I have the gavel, so I'll recognize myself. <laughs> Secretary Lewis, it's great to see you back in our committee. Dr. Harlan, welcome. It's wonderful to have both of you before us. I, I listened to the exchanges in regards to the fighter jets. I, I raised that issue with Secretary Newland uh, during our hearing on Ukraine itself. And, and my request is please um, keep us informed as to how this process is unfolding. You see the concern on both sides of the aisle to make sure that we do everything we can to help uh, the Ukrainians defend themselves. So. Uh, my request is that uh, you provide us timely information, if it needs to be in a classified setting, in a classified setting, uh, as to how we can make sure that we provide uh, everything we possibly can, either directly or through our allies, uh, to help uh, the Ukrainians in their moment of need. And time, timely action is critically important. I want to go to a subject that both of you talked about, and that is that human rights is a, the bedrock centerpiece of our uh, security assistance uh, goals. Both of you mentioned that in your opening statements, but we didn't talk too much in specifics. I would add to that, we want to make sure that our security assistance is not used to further corruption and corrupt regimes. So, uh, and then also, of course, we had the Leahy rules uh, in regards to uh, the requirements uh, in regards to uh, assistance. Uh, Secretary Lewis, can you just tell us how the Biden administration is carrying out that commitment that in our security assistance, our values in promoting human rights and good governance, anti-corruption are being uh, advanced? Senator, thank you for this question, and I know that you personally have worked on this issue for your entire time in Congress and really have played a leadership role here in the Senate. Um, I want to walk through a few things and then take a minute specifically to talk more about security sector governance, which I really highlight in my written testimony in more detail. So as you know, the administration is putting together a new conventional arms transfer policy, which is the policy that governs the work of the whole interagency on um, security assistance and cooperation. And what we um, are including in that is a renewed focus on human rights. Um, I think this is absolutely critical and reflective of the president's commitment. Um, and so we look forward to working with you and briefing you on the details of that as that moves forward. So one, we've got to get the policy governing it right. Um, the second thing I really want to focus on is security sector governance. And the reason why, which you um, highlight, is to me, security gov sector governance gets the core of bringing together democracy, anti-corruption, human rights. Um, and it is the reason I focused on it so much in my testimony. If we are working with security sectors, if we're working with the Ministry of Defense, um, and through our training, our cooperation, we include simple things like working on procurement, which reduces um, corruption, making sure that it is integrated, human rights and the rule of law are integrated into the training they receive from us, and that it builds into their entire security sector, um, not just one or two people. That human rights are part of the discussion from the beginning, middle, and end. Um, I think this is a real need for us to shift our focus in this way. Um, I've only been here four or five months, but we've, I've already tasked my team to looking at this and developing it further. And the last piece I would say on this is 
for the State Department to do security sector governance right and for PM to do that right and for us to get human rights and anti-corruption right, we have to be working with USAID, the Justice Department, and other parts of the State Department because what we're talking about is all of those pieces working together trying to create rule of law, respect for human rights, and good governance in a country. And so that also requires coordination. Dr. Carlin, I want, to, I want to just drill down a little bit on what Secretary Lewis is saying. I, I, I recognize the sincerity of our Commander-in-Chief on this issue. He is, talks about it frequently. Uh, uh, Secretary Blinken has talked about this frequently. Uh, in the Department of Defense, I, I don't challenge the Secretary's commitment on this subject, but it's tough to get the players to recognize that good governance, human rights are a priority when they're dealing with a more narrow focus objective that may have a military aspect to it and they do not th focus on the human rights or governance factor. How can you show leadership to make sure that we do carry out our commitment to human rights and good governance um, as part of our security assistance program? Thank you for raising this issue, Senator, and for your leadership on it. Look, it's not just the right thing to do. It is critical to the efficacy of our effort, so it has to be central. I can assure you that we have emphasized that throughout the Defense Department, and when we are talking with partners with whom these are very real concerns, I can very much pledge to you this is always on the agenda, and we are always raising it. Again, because it is not just the right thing to do, it actually has a direct relationship to the efficacy of what we're all trying to achieve. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you to both of you for being here with us today. Uh, I think I'm going to begin my questioning uh, with Dr. Carlin. Uh, it's good to see you again. Uh, I want to explore a little bit more the issue in Ukraine and what the options really are for us to provide additional assistance. My concern is that I think there's a real desire on the part of a lot of the members here in Congress, me included, to provide as much additional assistance as possible to uh, Ukraine. Uh, clearly, the attacks on, on their country are, are there, there is no there is no reason for it. Uh, they are the the innocent victim of an attack by by uh, Putin, who is clearly in the wrong and. Um, the human atrocities that are there are something which the American people uh, simply are frustrated with, angered by, and, and as usual, want to do something about. And yet at the same time, we recognize that we have a, a nuclear-armed uh, aggressor, and we have to be well aware of that as we make decisions about how to proceed. One of the items that's been discussed is the possibility of using Polish MiG-29s. And they, as a member of NATO, have what are now, and I'm, I think this is fair to say, equipment which is designed to fight on behalf of NATO. Uh, and I recognize that we're in an unclassified session, and so the, the, the answers back and forth may be a little bit broader than what we'd like to have, but I think it's important for the American public to hear and, and our colleagues to hear the challenges that we have in getting those, uh, first of all, into the appropriate hands, and second of all, protecting them and making them, them effective. Um, Dr. Carlin, can we walk through this a little bit in terms of just the logistics 
of what it takes to get a MiG-29 out of Poland, uh, get it prepared, uh, getting pilots that would be Ukrainian to be able to get them somewhere, and then to find locations within Ukraine in which they could safely land, uh, be equipped to attack, find the appropriate equipment or, or weapon systems, and then the command and control to get it to where they could actually be effective. Can you talk us through that a little bit, please? Thank you very much, uh, Senator. It's good to see you again. And uh, I really appreciate all of your cooperation and leadership in all of us together being able to support Ukraine in really this unprecedented way. And I would just underscore, as we all know, that there is only one man who is responsible for the despicable and horrific situation that we're seeing in Ukraine, and that is Mr. Putin. Uh, I really appreciate your point on this issue of, uh, of these MiGs. Um, and of course, it is a sovereign decision by Poland. We have had many, many discussions with them and with other allies on it. But exactly as you highlighted, there is a whole lot of logistics that would uh, have to, to have to happen should Poland wish to transfer them. Again, should they wish to do so, it is up to them, uh, rather than, of course, them, them going through us. We're really focused on what Ukraine's military can use today immediately on the field. Uh, and, and frankly, we're seeing the extraordinary impact of that paired with uh, Ukrainian people's extraordinary willingness to fight against this horrific Russian aggression. Well, look, look let, let me drill down to this a little bit, because I, I think there's ways to work it through that if they wanted to deliver it to another base that we had, that's one thing that I, I don't have an objection to that. I am concerned about the actual logistics, the time frames that we're talking about to prepare the aircraft to actually be able to be used there and the equipment that would go with it, the, the, the systems, the weapon systems that would be identified and then protecting those MiG-29s once we got there. Are you aware of air, air, uh, airports that are currently in a position to receive them and do we have the ground assets to protect those, those does Ukraine have the ground assets to protect those those aircraft once they are in Ukraine? Thank you. While I can't speak to kind of specific bases, what, what I can tell you is that right now today, uh, Ukraine's Air Force does have several squadrons of mission-capable aircraft. But we really haven't seen that playing uh, a massive role in the conflict. What we've seen is what they've been doing on, on air defense. That has really helped them uh, have a pretty major impact on Russia's efforts to contest this airspace. Well, I just think it's important that, that we do everything we can in an efficient manner and deliver whatever weapon systems we possibly can to, to help Ukrainians in their, in their fight against uh, this Russian aggression. And uh, uh, if, if it means that we can get these in in an expedited manner, that would be great. It would be a, a really good thing. At the same time, if there are other weapon systems that may need to be delivered that could have uh, more effect, uh, I, I think we should do that as well as quickly as possible. But thank you very much for, for the discussion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, um, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me first just associate myself with uh, the comments and I think a question that you posed in the opening round, and, and I won't necessarily have a question on this because I'm not sure that we can get a, a lot of helpful input from our, our, our panel on this question. The decision as much um, is, is made um, at a, a slightly higher pay grade uh, than those that are testifying here today, but this transition of 
security assistance uh, away from the Department of State to the Department of Defense is certainly something that this committee needs to be aware of um, and uh, care deeply about. Um, according to one study, um, the DOD um, manages 48 of the 50 new security assistance programs that were created after the 9-11 attacks. And out of the 107 existing security assistance programs today, DOD manages 87, a whopping 81% of those programs. That is a fundamental transition from the way in which we used to manage security assistance. And my worry is that it takes out of the equation um, the people who have the clearest and, and most important uh, visibility on the ground as to the impact of th that security assistance and those uh, transfers. And so I joined with the uh, chairman in raising concerns. Um, as for this question of uh, the transfer of MIGs that has been raised by a number of colleagues uh, here, um, listen, I, I will put up my bona fides uh, supporting Ukraine's sovereignty against anybody's. I've been there as many times as anybody on this committee. At the same time, I do think we need to recognize the um, extraordinary moment that we are in today. Um, never before has the United States and Russia um, been in this close military conduct, whether it was Afghanistan or Czechoslovakia or Hungary, when Russian forces during the Cold War moved into sovereign nations, um, the United States in those instances did not overtly support the forces fighting on the other side. Now, you can claim that was a mistake, but this is an unprecedented moment. And I think the administration is wise to make sure that we are providing support to Ukraine based on whether or not it supports the outcomes we seek to achieve, which is an end to the war, rather than just in service of blind escalation or momentum. Um, and so I appreciate the thought that the administration is putting in to this question of, of how and if uh, we flow um, MiG fighter jets or other very expensive advanced systems. Um, in the very small time I have left, I do want to ask one question, and, and that is one that I don't know that has been covered here, which is, um, we just spent $87 billion in military assistance over 20 years in Afghanistan. Um, and the army that we supported went up in smoke overnight. That is an extraordinary waste of U.S. taxpayer dollars. And it mirrors a smaller but similar investment we made from 2003 to 2014 in the Iraqi military who disintegrated when they faced uh, the prospect of a fight against ISIS. Clearly, there is something very wrong with the way in which we are flowing military assistance to partner countries, especially in complicated war zones. Um, I've got a minute and 10 seconds, so maybe you can just preview some lessons that we have learned um, or the process by which we are going to learn lessons from all of the money that we have wasted in Iraq and Afghanistan. Senator, I'll be brief so that Dr. Carlin can jump in as well. I, I think we do need to learn lessons. We need to make sure, as I was just saying to Senator Cardin, that when we provide security assistance, we also look not just at um, train and equip, but we look at other things like how the ministries of defense operate. Is there security sector governance? Are we creating an infrastructure that's going to actually work? 
Thank you for raising this issue, Senator, and I can assure you that the Department of Defense is in the process of commissioning uh, a study on this exact issue. I will just say, in line with Assistant Secretary Lewis, it is really important that when we look at these efforts, we spend time assessing political will, and we do not take an Excel spreadsheet approach to building partner militaries. That misses the higher order issues that are deeply relevant to security sector governance that will fundamentally show us the extent to which we can ultimately be successful or not with a partner. Thank you. Um, I, you know, in, in Iraq, last time I was there, we were spending four times as much money on security assistance as we were on non-security assistance. And what Afghanistan taught us, amongst many things, is that if you have a fundamentally corrupt government, um, then all the money you're flowing into the military is likely wasted in the end because that government can't stand and thus the military can't stand. So it also speaks to um, the rebalancing the way in which we put money into conflict zones to not think that military assistance alone does the job. You've got to be building um, sustainable um, governments that, that serve the public interests in order to make your security assistance um, matter um, and be effective. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And um, Senator Murphy, I would like to follow up on the question you raised with, with uh, Assistant Secretary Lewis. But before that, I would just like to, to reach out to Assistant Secretary Carlin to follow up on Senator Round's questions. Um, and as I observed uh, the situation with Poland's offer to transfer MiG-29s, initially Secretary Blinken green-lighted that. And then we saw the Department of Defense walk that back. My request view would be that if there is new intelligence, if there's a new assessment, if you could arrange to work with this committee in the appropriate setting to share with us what's driving that decision. I understand there are a number of operational and logistical considerations that uh, must be relevant, but I would appreciate your help in getting that information, again, in an appropriate setting to us so I can understand how we can have such a difference of opinion occur, or a difference in direction, I should say, occur in such a short period. To Senator Murphy's uh, point, um, Assistant Secretary Lewis, you and I have worked a great deal on this topic, and that's foreign military sales. Um, certain of our allies are very important partners. Uh, when I served as ambassador to Japan, I put a great deal of time into this, working not only with the DOD, the State Department, the Department of Commerce, but also with the United States Senate, trying to find ways to accelerate the timeline for foreign military sales. What I learned when I was serving in my previous role is that the timeline is far too long to get our allies equipped with the latest technology that they should be, uh, that, that they would desire to have and that we would desire for them to have. Given the rate of technology development that's occurring right now, these timelines that are denominated in years are far too long and the bureaucratic paperwork consumes more than the production time typically. Uh, to get this done. Again, Assistant Secretary Lewis, you and I have talked a great deal about this. Um, I would be very interested to, to have you highlight for us the major areas where you think we could work together to compress this timeline, to make ourselves more interoperable with our allies, to get more leverage out of our own investment uh, in, in military defense technology, because our allies are going to be more interoperable and more capable uh, if we can get this done faster. Senator. Really appreciate the question, and frankly, your leadership on this um, has been extraordinary, and I appreciate the time we've gotten to, to spend together on this. I'm going to tick through a few things and happy to discuss in more detail. We really learned some lessons um, from uh, the work you did in Japan, frankly. 
um, which was, number one, we've got to make sure that our two systems are working together. And what we discovered in Japan and what we see in other places is sometimes we literally have um, things that sound mundane but really make big differences, different procurement timelines. Um, we've got to get those lined up. The second thing we have to do is make sure that we have the security agreements in place so that when we're ready to move, things are ready to go. Um, the third piece, which I think we're going to need to work on um, over time, is really looking at the timelines, both um, as things move through DOD. You know um, there's a long timeline in sort of the upfront process. We've worked very hard to improve the timelines um, on our side, and I know often we are able to move things much more quickly um, uh, depending on you know the the system, and then finally, as you talked about, um, and we talked about previously, we're working with our companies who right now are for, are facing some. There's some real production timeline challenges. Some of that is due to COVID. Some of that um, we need to continue to work with them on. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think given the fact that we are about to vote on a significant mm -hmm. military budget, we need to be looking for every opportunity we possibly can to increase the efficiency of how our budget is deployed. And again, opportunities to leverage our military expenditures with our allies so that they are as interoperable as they possibly can be, so that they have the latest technology that they're equipped to operate. I think that increases our broader footprint. The example in Ukraine and our need to work with our partners couldn't be more glaring. And I very much appreciate the effort that you and your team have put forward. Thank you very much, Assistant Secretary Lewis. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you. Um, let, let, uh, is there any other? No. Okay. So let me close. Uh, Secretary Qualen, let me go back. You've now, in various answers to members' questions, alluded to the fact that Ukraine has several squadrons. I understand a squadron to be anywhere between 12 and 24 aircraft. So if there are several squadrons, are you suggesting that the Ukrainians have aircraft that they are not presently using? Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, what I am focusing on is that the material we have given Ukraine to help protect its population is quite literally being used every day, and that's really what we are trying to prioritize. Those systems that we are seeing are having this effect and that they are immediately able to get out into the field. As you know, many of our allies have also given assistance, and those are, of course, yeah. I, I, with all due respect, you have perfected the non-answer, so let me try again. The only thing is that I have endless time, uh, so we will get to an answer that is responsive. You said, in answer to several members' questions, Ukraine has several squadrons of aircraft. Now, that would imply that they have aircraft that they are not using. Is that a correct or incorrect statement? I think it's probably better to get that answer from Ukraine. I wouldn't want to speak, of course, for a sovereign government, but we have not seen them employing those aircraft to the extent that, that one might, might suggest. All right, so, the, so because even though we don't expect you to speak for a sovereign government, we have our own intelligence, you have your own assessments, and this is not... Uh, Putin understands what they have and don't have and what they're using and not using, so we're not giving away anything that is truly classified at the end of the day. How many squadrons do they have, that, to our knowledge? They have several squadrons. I don't know that I'm best suited to give you the specifics beyond that. There's several, two, three, four. 
It is a handful. I don't know that I'm best suited to give you more beyond that. Well, Thank you. The, the, well, here's the problem. Either there is a very good reason that the administration needs to explain as to why we should not be facilitating fighter jets to Ukraine so that they can defend themselves over the airspace. If that happens to be that they have dozens of fighter jets that they're not using, and then we get to the heart of why they're not using it, then that might be an explanation. Um, if they need some type of logistical support to take the aircraft that they have to put into space, that might be another uh, answer. But, the, but both of your departments need to give us an insight. If that has to be in a classified setting, so be it. But it has to have an insight. There has to be an answer. Non-answers to questions are not answers. Do we understand each other? Yes. We will take that back, Senator. Um, we certainly appreciate the questions that you're asking and the insight that you need to have into Secretary this. Secretary Carlin, do we understand each other? Thank you very much, Senator. Yes, and as Assistant Secretary Lewis said, we will take back your concerns. Okay, when you take back my concerns, I'd like to get an answer to my concerns. Mr. Chairman, I would just like to associate myself with your comments, too, and say that I would very much This, this committee has jurisdiction over arms sales. I don't like using that jurisdiction in a way that doesn't facilitate our foreign policy and national interests and security. But if I can't get answers to the fundamental questions, then I will. There may be a, a, a perfectly valid and good reason. I think all of us should know so we can pivot to something else. But if there is no perfectly valid and good reason, then we need to know that too. Um, Secretary Lewis, uh, do you agree that U.S. security assistance needs a comprehensive strategy for each recipient country, integrating all relevant aspects of U.S. security and foreign assistance? Yes. If so, uh, then do you agree that the State Department is the right agency to lead and coordinate those efforts? Yes, and obviously in coordination with other departments. The, uh, okay, so let's talk about that. Within state, for example, there are bureaus and offices that also do security assistance of, of various sorts. I'm not convinced that they're all coordinated with your particular department. Shouldn't there be a overall coordination to oversee and integrate states' various programs, as well as those of other agencies like DOD and USAID? Well, Senator, I agree that we need to make sure that we're coordinated. And as you point out, there are other parts of the State Department that work on these issues. Right now, we are regularly interacting with them. They weigh in, um, give opinions as we work through sales, as we work on all of these issues. Um, but happy to discuss further with you if you have additional ideas on improving coordination. Well, I, I, we do. Do you feel that your position is empowered to do that, or should it fall to T? Um, I, I'm not going to comment here wh where I think that should fall. Um, obviously, uh, T, as you know, is the undersecretary who oversees my bureau. Um, I think our bureau does an, an excellent job at what we do. Okay. Well, we're going to follow it up with you because we think that there is better coordination to be had. Uh, how is state and DOD's cooperation uh, on DOD's Section 333 programs and other security assistance programs? Um, I would say we have excellent coordination. We work um, really hand in glove with them. I would say that as we look um, at the increases in funding that are going to be coming, 
Um, we need to make sure that we have a workforce that is large enough and trained enough to deal with these increases coming our way. Does state have the ability to veto or significantly alter DOD's assistance programs in planning or in implementation if it feels that significant foreign policy priorities are not being appropriately reflected? We do have that authority, yes. Uh, uh, let me um, clarify. Over some of the programs where we have concurrence, we have that authority. Yeah. I, okay, have authority. Do you have the ability? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, let me... Uh, ask one last round of questions on uh, that are focused on human rights. A 2019 Government Accountability Office GAO report found shortcomings in tracking and evaluating human rights related training for foreign security forces that are required under DOD's Section 333, required states inter international military education and training and other security assistance and security cooperation authorities. Some prior GAO reports have also found inconsistent implementation of required Leahy law human rights vetting process for security assistance recipients. How, if at all, have state and DOD improved implementation of these statutory requirements? Um, this, I, I'm glad you raised this issue because this is one of the things that I've been focused on um, since arriving at the department. Um, so we have worked to improve these processes. One of the ways, as I think you know, is we coordinate with the Bureau, uh, the, the Bureau that also oversees human rights to make sure that when we are supplying the security assistance that is provided, that has to be vetted under the Leahy law, that we are tracking, making sure we know if there are units that have issues and making sure that uh, the funding um, would not go to them. So I think we have seen improvements. There is always more to do, and I will continue to be focused on that. DOD. Thank you for raising this, Mr. Chairman. I would absolutely align myself with Assistant Secretary Lewis's comments. Um, we are indeed uh, making a lot of progress to ensure that we are tracking, and the moment that we see anything concerning, either with a unit or with an individual, we're immediately stepping back to try to understand what's happening, and if we do need to ultimately pause or sus suspend such cooperation. Have you, you both evaluated the effectiveness of human rights training? Um, that is something we're looking at right now. I think one of the things, to go back to my opening statement, I think human rights training is important in and of itself, but it also has to be broader than that, and that's why I'm focused on this question of security sector governance. It's not just about the training that we provide for individuals or individual units. It has to be part of um, the entire way the Ministry of Defense operates. Mr. Chairman, I would completely agree with Assistant Secretary Lewis's comments. It's not just that human rights, um, I, I, you know, operating appropriately uh, for a military in that vein is uh, is a nice to have. Frankly, it is directly related to that military's effectiveness. If a population can't trust its military to treat it appropriately, it's probably not going to feel comfortable with how its military is exerting its sovereignty over its territory. Thank you. All right, and then uh, finally, uh, my understanding from the testimony I heard here today, partly in response to answers, is that the United States and Taiwan, uh, uh, well, the United States believes that Taiwan should be focused on acquiring more asymmetric military capabilities to offset Chinese military superiority should it invade, rather than acquiring more conventional military weapons systems. Uh, is, is that a correct statement? 
Senator, I'm very much glad you raised that issue. I think what the lessons learned, and, and we are continuing to learn from Ukraine, is exactly that. Um, what we believe is that Taiwan needs to focus, and what, let me define asymmetric, it needs to be cost-effective, mobile, resilient, and decentralized defensive systems. Um, I think we've seen those used to great effect in Ukraine. We're looking at um, things like ISR systems, short-range air defense systems, naval sea mines, and coastal defense and cruise missiles. The other piece I would add to that is what we call um, reserve reform, which really what we've seen in Ukraine is the population has to be ready to fight. Obviously, um, we don't want there to be a conflict in Taiwan, um, but what they are doing is taking steps to address this issue. They've just um, uh, created the establishment of an all-out defense mobilization organization, and they are working with our National Guard um, as they develop this program. So does the uh, United States and Taiwan have a shared understanding and operational definition for uh, asymmetric? We are working on that with them today. Um, I think we have a much deeper understanding of that right now. Well, that's that's critical if we're if we're going to have uh, uh, a, a combined understanding of what asymmetric means. Uh, doctor, what was the last time the Department of Defense and the Taiwan MND undertook a joint assessment of its needs? Mr. Chairman, I can't give you the exact date, but I can assure you there are very regular consultations on this exact topic so that we can help them ensure that they are most appropriately building a military tailored to the threat that we all see. And as Assistant Secretary Lewis said, I think uh, the situation we're seeing in Ukraine right now is a very worthwhile case study for them about why Taiwan needs to do all it can to build asymmetric capabilities to get its population ready so that it can be as prickly as possible should China choose to violate its, uh, its sovereignty. Uh, do you know whether any such meetings have taken place this year? Mr. Chairman, I, I can't, I can't uh, speak to you, that. Would that, you respond to that for the record for me? I would be glad to. It's another part of our, our department, but I would be glad to get you that exact answer okay. uh, after this hearing. Thank you. And uh, lastly, Secretary Lewis, the Safeguarding Human Rights and Arms Exporter or Safeguard Act that I introduced last year with a half dozen of my colleagues would update the Arms Export Control Act to ensure that human rights are given proper consideration in arms exports and that such exports are monitored to ensure they are not used for human rights abuses. Do you know the Department of State supports that objective? I think we definitely support the objective and happy to work with you um, as you continue to develop that legislation and the other legislation you're working on. Well, I would look forward to, uh, to that uh, opportunity. Uh, with that and seeing no other members uh, before the committee seeking recognition, uh, this hearing's record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, March 11th. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than tomorrow. With the thanks of the committee for your service, Senator Haggerty. Mr. Chairman, just uh, less than a minute, if I might add, uh, to your point on Taiwan and Taiwan's military capabilities, particularly in the asymmetrical area, this is evolving rapidly. We're seeing with Ukraine the need and, and, and the desire to have uh, our friends and allies equipped sooner than later. And as we see the threat continue to mount from China, I would encourage you to, again, Put the notion of speed that we've talked about, Secretary Lewis, uh, in, into your thought process, Dr. Carlin as well. Uh, we need to move quickly and, and not to be looking at this in hindsight, but to be prepared. 
So again, if, if we can include in our conversations moving forward, Assistant Secretary Lewis, how we will incorporate that, particularly with the focus on Taiwan, I would appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, with the thanks of the committee for your service and your testimony and looking forward to the responses to some of those things, both for the record and otherwise, this hearing is adjourned.